0: On this great day we have um, two stories that are being laid before us and we have conversation about the, um, the danger, the danger of desire. The two stories call us uh, to deep reflection on the meaning of Jesus' identity and the inherent dangers of unbridled desire as depicted in the story of David, Bathsheba, and Uriah. The gospel shows us Jesus escaping the crowds who are amazed by his power, but are limited in their vision. They see him as a a miracle worker, the long-awaited prophet who would be their king, and yet he will explain to them and to us that he is so much more. This gospel passage, the feeding of the 5,000, is the only miracle story that appears in all four of the gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is the only one that is in all of those gospels. For us, in John's gospel and the year that we are in now, this passage is the opening act for what will be a month-long exploration of the sixth chapter of John's gospel. I am the bread of life. Jesus will say, whoever comes to me will never be hungry. I am the bread that came down from heaven. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood will abide in me and I in them. He will turn to his disciples later in this chapter as he turns to us and will ask, does this offend you? Indeed, some will turn away. All of this talk of of eating flesh and drinking blood does not really sound so inviting when we think about it. But this is the challenge set before us in the coming weeks. From now until August the 22nd, chapter 6 will be our gospel home. We will go through it verse by verse, 71 verses in all. And we will be asked what it means for us to encounter Jesus in the Holy Bread of Communion. What does it mean to know him? Not merely as someone like Moses, who was a mediator of God's gift, but rather to know him as God's incarnation, as God's gift of the Word made flesh. Your ancestors ate manna in the wilderness, And they died, he says. I am the living bread. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. Yes, yes, the gospel will press the question of Jesus' identity and how it conflicts with the misdirected desires of the crowd who want an earthly king. And yet Jesus is not swayed by their desires. The gospel says that when he realized that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he withdrew to the mountain by himself. He remained true to his call. He withdrew. King David, however, being of flesh and blood, like the rest of us, was not merely so strong. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David remained at Jerusalem. The old adage, idle hands are the devil's workshop, comes to mind. David, the warrior king, has become indolent, and by his unbridled desires, he will bring misery upon his family. The story illustrates the danger of desire, and the unforeseen consequences that can accompany our sins. The situation, we will see, will spin out of control. Here's a passage from the epistle of James that speaks to just what we are in store for in David's family. It says, this is James 1, verses 14 and 15. But one is tempted by one's own desires being lured and enticed by it, then when that desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And that sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth to death. There will be conspiracy and attempted cover-ups, unnecessary deaths on the battlefield and in the home, even David's confession of his sin does not stop what his sin has set in motion. Nathan, his confessor, tells him, Thus says the Lord, the sword will never leave your house, because you have despised me and done what is evil in my sight. You will not die, but the sword will never leave your house. This is a chilling and cautionary tale showing us that even the most righteous are not immune to disaster. This is David, right? The anointed shepherd boy, the slayer of uh, Goliath, the great one, the righteous king, even David falls. All you have to do is read the rest of 2 Samuel. To see how this story unfolds. One calamity after another. The most righteous. Susceptible to their own desires. Especially. Especially when nothing. And no one. Stands in their way. And no one can say no. As they say. Absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. David is told. This is Bathsheba, daughter of Ilium, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So he knows. He knows that this is another man's wife. And he knows what the law of Moses says Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. Thou shalt not murder. All this he knows. But he is the king. And who is going to stop him from taking whatever? and whomever he wants. Certainly, he has put aside those worrisome restrictions of Scripture and tradition. In the 15th chapter of Numbers, verses 37 and 39, we read these following words. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and tell them to make fringes on the corners of their garments, so that when you see it, you will remember all the commandments of the Lord and do them and not follow the lust of your own heart and your own eyes. All of this David knows, and all of this he has set aside. Here is displayed, as I said, the danger of desire. And though the story happened 3,000 years ago, it is also happening today. It is happening wherever the powerful and the powerless come into contact, be it the workplace, the home, the palace, the church is not just a story of lust and sex. I mean, brothers and sisters, that would just be too easy. That would limit the scope of this story. This is a story about the abuse of power and the enablers who make the abuse possible. It is a story that cries out for us to give attention to the one who is abused I don't know about you, but I would love to read uh, this story from Bathsheba's point of view. What went through her mind when the summons came? What were the depths of her grief, her sorrows, her losses? Did she go willingly or with trepidation and fear? Could she have said, "Mm, no. Tell King David I'm busy. Besides... I'm Uriah's wife. Could she have said that? Or or was this part of an elaborate scheme on her part to get in good with the king? Alas, we only have what we have been given. But still, still, I would love if we could have one of those breakout rooms you know, like they have on Zoom, and, and, and take all the, the sisters among us and, and have them go off and, and, and chew over this story and then come back and tell us what they think, what their take on this story is. This is. As I said, this is a story that's not just about David. There is also Bathsheba and the countless others who have suffered from the unbridled desires of the powerful, We are called, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge them, to weep with them, to intercede for them, and whenever possible, to put a stop to their abuse. We do so by being Christ in the world, by realizing that, as he said, when we take him into ourselves, he abides in us, not merely to rest in us, but to transform us to be his heart of compassion, justice, and mercy. The ancient mystic Meister Eckhart asked, what good, what good is it to me for the creator to give birth to his son if I do not give birth to him in my time and my culture? What good is it if we look on this story as a 2,000 or 3,000 year old story if we don't in this time incarnate Christ in our own lives. The process, the long, 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 ever-continuing process of this birthing will be set before us once again when we come to the baptismal covenant. And we will remember that it is not by our own strength that we give birth to Christ. Not by our own strength do we escape the dangers of desires, but by the power of God working in us and enabling us to do infinitely more than we can ask or imagine. That power strengthening us and enabling us to be the birthings of Christ in our time. Amen.